0: Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jace. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the 1961 noir film, Victim, directed by Basil Bearden, written by Janet Green, and starring Dirk Bogard and Sylvia Sims. (laughs) Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunurong Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. You may notice that that acknowledgement of country has changed. That's because we've moved house. Uh, If the audio on this episode is a little different to previously, uh, that is why, and we apologize. We also have some content warnings for this episode. This episode will discuss misogyny, intense societal homophobia, imprisonment, blackmail, and suicide. So this episode is going to start off a bit more historical than is usual for a queer as fiction episode. Uh, That's because the production of this movie came in response to a very specific set of circumstances that are fairly well documented. So the United Kingdom of the 1950s was one where government persecution of queer people was at, if not an all-time high, then certainly a significant peak. A key figure here is David Maxwell Fife, who was the first Earl of Kilmore. Um, sorry if I'm getting our pronunciation wrong, but not really that sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, if you wanted
0: us to pronounce it right, you shouldn't have been an Earl. <laughs> his appointment as Home Secretary in 1951, after the Conservatives gained power, led to the following. A year after his arrival at the Home Office, the combined prosecution rate for actual or attempted sodomy or gross indecency had soared to 5,443. It had been 1,276 in 1939. Bad man. This increased prosecution rate led to a series of high-profile court cases, most notably that of Edward Montague Scott, the third Baron Montague of Beaulieu. By the end of 1954, there were over a 1,000 men in prison for homosexual acts, with an average age of 37. Yeah, so the range of men being prosecuted for this was much wider than it had been previously and that's why i think you know you get these things like the average age was 37 so you weren't just seeing like young men Mm. prosecuted for this and you weren't just seeing poorer men prosecuted Mm. for this this was affecting all classes of british society
2: so previous to that if you were like a well-off british man who was gay could you have just kind of escaped prosecution
0: by being a wealthy man that is kind of the impression i got Mm. of like you know when the government wasn't focusing on this yeah that was kind of the vibe is it was a law that existed you know that was largely only used on poorer people yeah um obviously Um. there have been different periods in british society this is a law that had been on the books for hundreds of years at this Mm. point most notoriously obviously in the case of oscar wilde
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but i guess quite notably with oscar wilde he was encouraged to by his friends to flee the country for france and could have done that had he chosen to yeah so presumably a lot of other men of his class or higher could have chosen to do that mm. uh, and probably did choose to do that in
2: many cases i mean to go straight into the film that's exactly what multiple characters try to do in the film or yeah. talk about doing in the film
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I think what we're seeing at this point is a government that is focused on prosecuting this law, and also a um, situation where blackmail, as evidenced in the film, is becoming a more and more common tactic, and obviously that's going to be applied more at middle and upper class men who Mm. have more money.
2: It just makes sense, yeah.
0: So there was a clear need to address the issue, and thus a departmental committee was set up by Fife and the Conservative government, headed by Sir John Wolfenden, and featuring 11 men and 4 women, largely legal and medical professionals, although I believe there was like the head of the Girl Scouts or something. (laughs) Okay. Just to
2: represent like public morality?
0: Yeah, it was definitely like, yeah, this was a public morals kind of committee. Yeah. After meeting for 62 days, starting in September 1954, 32 of which were used for interviewing witnesses... Um, of which they did manage to, after some great difficulty, which is unsurprising, procure some witnesses who were themselves homosexual. Mm -hmm. The Wolfendom Report was published in September of 1957 and recommended that homosexual behaviour between consenting adults in private should no longer be a criminal offence.
2: What a reasonable recommendation. Thanks, the head of the Girl Scouts.
0: (laughs) So, Fife was not happy with the results of this report.
2: So, is Fife the guy who commissioned the report? Yes. Yeah, okay.
0: Fife is the reason
1: we have this problem. Yeah. And he's like, write me a report on this problem, telling me that this is good, actually. And they were like, no.
0: (laughs) Buy some thin mints. Um, He's quoted... He's quoted as saying the following to Sir Robert Boothby, who was a bisexual MP, whose Wikipedia article I did not have time to dive into properly, but which immediately makes this whole film pretty plausible. But Fife said to him, apparently, I am not going down in history as the man who made sodomy legal. Um, Why not,
2: Fife? Why not?
0: I couldn't find a great contemporary source for that quote, um, only a London Times article from 2000, but it certainly wouldn't be surprising given what we know of Fife for him to have said something like that. I did find a quote mentioned in the same article that was in the UK's Hansard Records, um, where he said, "...I must make clear to the House that one element in dealing with this matter is the protective element in punishment, because homosexuals in general are exhibitionists and proselytisers and are a danger to others, especially the young." And so long as I hold the office of Home Secretary, I shall give no countenance to the view that they should not be prevented from being such a danger.
2: That was so wordy. Like, I was able to, you know, understand the homophobia at the basement, but it was so wordy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, obviously he's a trash flyer and, like, was very, very virulently homophobic.
1: Yeah. Um, so this might be, like, getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but I guess was he... We've seen how he sort of brought this problem in. Is he therefore notably homophobic for his time or does he fall within the
0: norm uh he seems to have been particularly homophobic for his time okay maybe not drastically so but yeah even within the conservative party Mm -hmm. he was more homophobic than the average and the conservatives were more homophobic than labor
2: Mm -hmm. okay
0: i do want to note um obviously you know what i just told you about what this report handed down Pretty great, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It should be noted that the committee also considered sex work when sort of looking at public decency and that the recommendations of the Wolfenden Report were rather more judgmental of sex occurring outside of private homes, leading to a police crackdown in order to drive prostitution off the streets. The whole thing really has the vibe of a way to avoid court cases for proper English gentlemen while still cracking down on the poor. Mm. Ah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not going to give Wolfenden too much credit while acknowledging that this was obviously still a huge deal given that it had been commissioned by the Conservative government. Yeah. But uh, it's also
2: kind of a way to just
0: be like, look, if you're a well-off man and you're discreet, we're not going to come after you. Yes. Yeah. With Fife saying things like the quote that I just read out to you guys, uh, it's not a great environment, um, but certainly there are those who see the Wolfenden Report and want to bring the general public around on its recommendations. Uh, and that's where the creators of our film come in. <laughs> Scriptwriter Janet Green and director Basil Dearden, they had previously worked together on a film exploring racism towards Afro-Caribbean immigrants to the UK during 1950s uh and i think they did another sort of message film Mm -hmm. after this one
2: yeah okay Um. that is unsurprising (laughs) (laughs) given the heavy message of this film Yes, yes Yes. yeah
0: we will discuss that fairly extensively (laughs) it was as one might expect not easy to make such a film at the time um here's a quote from john trevelyan the secretary of the british board of film classification in 1959 in our circles, we can talk about homosexuality, but the general public is embarrassed by the subject, so until it becomes a subject that can be mentioned without offence, it will be banned. The script was heavily vetted by Trevelyan and the BBFC, and many concerns were raised. Uh, one early reader wrote, It is very oppressive to be confronted with a world peopled with practically no one but queers. <laughs>
2: So to go back to that quote about like why it would be banned in film, he's not saying that he considers homosexuality particularly abhorrent. He's just saying that he knows people will be offended so he's not going to expose them to it.
0: Yeah, it seems to be that kind of, I mean, particularly British uh, attitude, right, Mm. of like we can't expose this to the masses because they won't be able to handle it.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: But yeah, the set of the film was closed off to visitors during production and an ultimately failed attempt was made to conceal the subject matter of the film from the press. So they were really trying to avoid people sort of knowing what this film was about before it actually was fully done and released.
2: So was there hope kind of you step into the cinema being like, what's on this week? And you come up being like, huh, the gays aren't so bad. And you don't
0: like actively know what you're in for. Um, well, to give you an idea of how simultaneously coy and blunt the production and build up was, <laughs> I'd like to show you the trailer of the film. Ooh, it sounds um, fun. Which is easily found on YouTube for anyone who wants to follow along at home. I love old movie trailers. So, having now watched the trailer, what did you think?
1: <laughs> Blunt, Blunt and coy does sum it up quite well. Mm. It definitely starts being like, wow, who did he murder? <laughs> and as it goes along, it's it's, I feel, becomes increasingly... Like, it has to dance harder to get around the question of what's going on. So I assume at least some people were like, wait a minute, this is some kind of gay thing. (laughs) That line about, like, what crime could have linked an aging hairdresser and an actor, it's like, oh, gosh, I (laughs) want to. You were saying Alice when we watched it. Um,
2: I also thought it was kind of interesting the way its whole line is like, what crime is it? What crime is it? And obviously, the answer to that question is the crime's homosexuality. But then later in the trailer, it says, What crime are these people a victim of? And mm. the answer to that is blackmail. Mm. But it's already said blackmail at the start of the trailer. So it's like, Which question are you asking? Yeah, that's true, actually. I was
1: thinking about that as well in terms of like, yeah, how the trailer and the film position all of these gay men as kind of both victims and criminals. Mm, is yeah,
2: quite complex. I think ultimately sympathetic, but definitely complex, and especially within that trailer, like not so clearly sympathetic, quite unclear.
0: Um, yeah, we'll get a bit more into the film's uh, views on gay men as we sort of go further along. But yeah, I just wanted to give you all a view of how society saw and was first exposed to this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I have a
0: question. Mm-hmm.
1: This, is, this is kind of an embarrassing question. Mm-hmm. Where did you see a trailer when this was out? Did people have TV at home? Would you see this before other
0: films? Like, where were you seeing film trailers? Uh, I don't think people had...
2: In the early sixties some people would, but I don't think it would have been the norm.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I'm not I'm not sure that movie trailers were a common thing to see on T V at the time. I'm pretty sure this would be you would see this before the movie started. Okay. Like before a different movie started. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. I guess it's interesting then to consider
0: what movies it was shown.
1: Mm, yeah as well but mm.
0: so the film stars Dirk Bogard who was himself gay living with his manager and partner Anthony Forward for nearly four decades until Forward's death in 1988 uh, and Sylvia Sims who had a family friend who had died by suicide after being accused of being gay Um, so obviously both of them had significant Mm. reason to take on the roles both roles were offered to a series of actors before being taken by Bogard and Sims and it's worth noting that Bogart in particular was a major star of British film at the time who was just breaking into Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Apparently, part of the reason he never became a big Hollywood star was his refusal to enter into a marriage of convenience in order mm-hmm. to sort of conceal his homosexuality. Mm.
2: So how well known was the fact that he was gay?
0: Uh, not Yeah, okay. He was very, very private throughout his entire life.
2: Mm-hmm. It's interesting then that he, like, decided to take on this film, which I assume would inevitably have led to some conversation about, like, who are these actors and why are they willing to Mm. be in this movie?
0: Yeah, so I think he'd been a kind of, uh, sort of heartthrob figure who'd done a lot of very not particularly serious romantic lead roles, Mm -hmm. and this was kind of his effort to do a more serious and dramatic role. Yeah, Uh, and apparently it led to a bunch of other serious and dramatic roles, including other roles where he played queer characters or Hmm. queer-coded characters, Um, so I would be interested to look up more of those films at a later Hmm. point. Um, because I do think his acting here is pretty outstanding. Mm, although we can get yeah. into that a little bit more later on.
1: Um, I won't get into that now, but I will say he was like the only person I could consistently recognise. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All the men in this film look the same.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> yes, a lot of them do. Like <laughs> uh, I think a lot of the lawyers do, but like mm. I wouldn't say that the like barber and the actor and the like car salesman. And the bookstore guy all look the same. They all are quite different. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like I'm sorry, Alice, but I don't necessarily like buy your perception of this as someone who struggles with face blindness at times.
2: Yeah, I'm very bad at recognizing people, especially <laughs> in movies. So I, especially in black and white movies, where you have less cues. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> um. Obviously, they are all dressed fairly similarly. Mm. Um,
2: See now, imagine you can't tell the difference between faces. see the problem i'm struggling with
0: you
1: i can tell the difference between faces and i don't think that literally every man in this movie looks identical but i did often have to get cues from the setting or the dialogue to remember exactly which of the many you know random white guys of a generally similar age that i was looking at that's fair Yeah. yeah yeah Um, and they are all dressed, yeah, identically for the most part, which is,
0: yeah, Yeah.
1: <laughs> Especially, like, yeah, there's no colour in this movie, so it's not even like, that's a blue suit or anything like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you pretty much have, like, all the men who aren't lawyers are wearing, like, pale overcoats, mm. and all the men who are lawyers are wearing black suits, and then occasionally a pale overcoat over the yeah. top of that. Yeah, and yeah exactly. Like- yeah. So-
1: <laughs> and there are,
0: like, quite a lot of characters. There
1: are, yeah. yeah. So...
2: There's like a surprisingly big cast just give you like little tidbits of like, here, you're going to see this guy for five minutes to give you one example of attitudes to homosexuality and then he's gone forever.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, as the early reader said, it's a world peopled with practically no one but queers. Yeah. (laughs) It's important to note that there was no question of what the filmmakers were doing with this, um, even at the time. A review from the New York Times of the movie when it came out says the following, Indeed, it has been acknowledged that Michael Ralph and Basil Dearden produced the film as an open protest against Britain's law that being a homosexual is a criminal act, a law that has been described as the blackmailer's charter, as it is in the film. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, like, certainly once the movie came out, everyone knew what was happening. There wasn't any question of whether the filmmakers were making a message movie. They absolutely mm. were.
2: The message is very
0: clear. Yeah. But I, d- I do I want to specify that especially for anyone who doesn't like go and watch the movie because i feel like there's often the view of like people not being aware of homosexuality in the past or like Mm. people being sort of like not understanding of what the struggles were But, like, this was very much a film that was publicly available and was very open about what Mm -hmm. the sort of legal struggles were for queer people at the time. So
1: to go back to all the secrecy around the production of this movie Mm. uh, and Alice kind of asking, did they want people to go into this movie not knowing what it was and then be sort of educated about this issue of Mm. legalising sex between men? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that, like, can't really have been their goal because it would have been everyone who went the first day it came out and Mm. then it was apparently talked about like do yeah. they want all that press around release
0: as opposed to like gradually over time beforehand or yeah i guess they didn't really want a giant public outcry developing over time mm-hmm. before the film had been released mm-hmm. that would have led the board of film classification to be kind of pressured into banning the film okay uh, that yeah. makes sense because yeah. that um, that's definitely a thing that occurred with yeah. various film productions i mean the film whilst it did get released uh in the uk didn't get released in the us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, probably in part that is because it had already been released in the UK and kind of the jig was up as to what it was about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I now want to move into talking about the film itself. Um, I'll first do a brief plot summary. There's a lot of plot in this movie because Mm. it's a kind of neo-noir drama. So there's lots of twists and turns. But um, I'm going to try and be fairly brief with this. The movie's only an hour 40, it's available on YouTube, literally just for free, so please go ahead and watch it um, if you would like to. So, in the movie, Melville Farr, a promising barrister about to become a QC, or Queen's Counsel, becomes involved in the investigation into the death by suicide of a young man, Boyd Barrett, who was attempting to contact Farr before he died. Barrett was doing this because he was gay, he'd had a close relationship with Farr, and a photo had been taken of the last time the two had spoken, with Barrett crying and Farr seemingly also emotional. This photo had been used as blackmail, forcing Barrett to steal from his employer to pay the blackmailers. Farr investigates the blackmailers, encountering several other gay men being exploited by them who, for various reasons, are unwilling to put their neck on the line to ensure the blackmailers are brought to justice. In the main part, this is because they themselves would be smeared in the press, likely charged, and potentially jailed for their queerness. Eventually, Far decides that even though it will ruin his career, he will work with the police to take down the blackmailers, um, who uh, turn out to be a smarmy man with a lot of camp energies. <laughs> And an older woman, a bookshop clerk who we had met earlier in the movie, who works for the older gay man who Barrett had been seeing before he became obsessed with Far, and who was disgusted by the moral perversion she perceived in her employer.
1: Now that you give this summary, it occurs to me that this movie is structured identically to the Scream movies. <laughs> 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 Except instead of gay black male, obviously Scream has murders. We have, like, reveal at the end about who the two people are and everything. It is. It is. I'm correct.
0: Don't. I, no, I no, know. no. I, like, Eli's, Eli's saying this because I'm looking kind of skeptical, but I'm not really skeptical so much as, like, thinking about it, and yeah. I think you might be correct. Yeah.
2: yeah, I was just trying to dredge my mind for what happens in Scream. <laughs> I can elaborate.
0: <laughs> um, but, yeah, so the film ends with, yeah, Far deciding that he will work with the police. They're able to capture the uh, and arrest the blackmailers and far and his wife you know he sort of says that she should leave rather than have to deal with all the uh press that will come his way she says that she would like to come back to him later and he says that he would love that basically <laughs> um and so yeah the film kind of ends with them this this couple deciding that they will eventually get back together although you know will they that's a question i think
2: They will at least support each other. Whether they'll remain, you know, like, a married couple and he'll be expected to never sleep with a man again. Unclear. But I think they do agree that they're going to support each other. Yeah,
0: yeah. But there's definitely, I think, uh, in Bogard's performance a lot of, like, tortured looks mm. that he gives. Uh, and particularly in that final scene, I think there's a very clear kind of, it seems like, oh, okay, he's being heroic and they're going to get back together. But I I don't know if he believes the words that he's saying in that moment. Mm.
1: Mm. Or even if they do, it doesn't seem unlikely that they have a version of this conversation again.
2: Mm. Yeah.
0: So what is this movie? <laughs> uh <laughs> It's noir. It's dark. It's gritty. The phrase is usually hard boiled. Uh, I've got some great quotes here that illustrate this. Um, one man says, I can't help you. I've got myself to think of. Another says, I wish I could trust you. You can trust my bank balance. (laughs) And a final quote, I'm a policeman, sir. I don't have feelings.
2: I did enjoy that I'm a policeman, I don't have feelings line, only because it mirrored exactly when somebody asks for himself earlier in the movie, like, what do you think of the law? And he's not out to that person. He's like, I'm a lawyer, with the implication of, like, I'm a lawyer, I don't have opinions on the law, I just prosecute the mm. law. And the policeman says the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there is, like, an interesting message there of all these people are just acting out what's in the law without actually, you know, thinking about or standing behind it. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah yeah well i mean i guess in the case of the policeman although he says i don't have feelings about it he does have this lengthy diatribe earlier in the film where he expresses his opinion that these <laughs> men shouldn't
0: be uh being prosecuted for this
2: that's true and i guess like far is obviously the same like he yeah. says i'm a lawyer but like he spends the entire film trying to track down this blackmailer
0: so yeah in the traditions of kind of noir movies we see a large array of characters many of whom act suspiciously uh my particular favorites are a gay couple who are constantly on about getting back to cheltenham uh who act very suspiciously and are very nosy and it turns out they've been swindling money by pretending to be war widows in letters soliciting money i was convinced
2: those guys were the
0: blackmailers for a significant chunk of the movie like these guys are so (laughs) dodgy
2: But they were just a red herring.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's a very, like, classic trope of the genre. Yeah. Many characters in the film aren't what they seem. Several of Far's compatriots in the legal profession are eventually revealed to be gay and happily paying off the blackmailers. Well, not happily, but... Yeah. The senior police officer reveals a great degree of sympathy to the queers that is never expanded upon, but seems to strongly hint at his own sexuality, or perhaps that of a relative. Mm. We'll get back to that later.
2: Oh, okay. I was just like, oh yeah, that policeman's a surprisingly good man and moved on with that.
0: (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) um, and the barman who serves a largely gay clientele reveals his hatred of uh homosexuals um, of course, the clerk in the bookshop is the most devious. She tells her employer she doesn't care about anything other than her paycheck on Fridays, uh, but she was motivated as much by hatred as by money in her blackmail efforts. She says someone's got to make them pay for their filthy blasphemy um, mm, when confronted.
1: Yeah. Uh, I feel like now is as good a time as ever to talk about the whole thing where we're like, this This guy, like one of the blackmailers wears just this like giant pair of goggles. <laughs> A way of, like, disguising himself, and I just think that's silly and worth
0: pointing out. Absolutely, and we are actually going to go a little bit further into okay. the specific presentation of yeah. our
1: It's like, oh, wait, he took off his stick-on mustache.
2: Yeah, there's literally a line where somebody's like, would you be able to recognize him without the goggles?
1: <laughs> and Farr's
2: like, yes, obviously. Yes,
1: I'm a human man with eyes.
2: <laughs> They're like motorcycle
0: goggles, to be clear. He's not just
2: wearing random goggles to goggles. <laughs>
0: So I think we've kind of answered the question I was going to ask you to already, which is that, you know, what the filmmakers are doing is very obvious with the historical context. I'm interested to know what the two of you kind of identified as the movie's message before you knew the specific historical context that I gave you earlier.
2: I think the historical context you've given me just kind of confirms what I understood by the time the film finished. I was like, oh yeah, this film is very clearly like hammering home to me the message of like the damage this law is doing to Mm. men's lives. But I was like pleasantly surprised when I watched the film because I didn't know that going in. And I expected, especially when you get kind of early on in the film when, Barrett dies by suicide, I was like, oh, yes, this is just a film where queers die miserably. That's the film I'm going to watch. It's going to end on a similar note. Mm. And I was like, oh, no, that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah, it was really interesting,
1: like, as we are now today in the midst of all these different discussions about, you know, like public discussions about queerness, which Mm. you hear all the different perspectives of, many of them terrible, to hear uh, arguments that are in some ways very similar and in some ways very different, know several generations back Mm. um so i thought it was quite interesting just watching all of the different uh like nuances of those arguments play out um it did seem broadly sympathetic so i'll agree with alice Mm -hmm. when that policeman does his first like little rant about it and the other policeman comes back being like oh i can't remember a specific argument no i think we should lock them up because of you know it's a deviance or whatever he says and the other policeman's like if we prosecuted every deviance everyone would be in prison i was like "Ah, oh, i see okay <laughs> so this isn't yeah. gonna be particularly subtle yeah but i i guess like it did feel sympathetic but it did also feel notable to me how even many of the most sympathetic lines or characters still had this perspective of like well yeah obviously these people are sick but that doesn't mean they should be loved up.
2: Mm. So that
1: is a little bit of a caveat on the sympatheticness of it that I guess I would note for like a modern viewer. Mm, yeah.
2: Absolutely. I think a lot of the gay men do say things like, you know, oh, I'm forced to find love in the only way I can or like, you know, like I'm basically I'm unlucky, I'm unfortunate, I've been like, you know, I was going to say cursed, but something like that. Yeah. To have to live in this way. Yeah. Like none of them are proud
0: to be gay. So, as you two have just kind of raised, the movie discusses a range of opinions in society at the time, from those who feel sorry for homosexuals, those who consider it a medical condition, through to uh, homophobic Puritans who think that's an excuse, and that decriminalization would lead to a kind of slippery slope. Um, I want to go a little bit more in-depth on this now. What were you going to say?
1: I was just going to say regarding the slippery slope and isn't that familiar Mm. some of this is so dated and it's just like you know i can see how this was a discussion in society but it's just not something that has anything to do with our lives and some of it is like oh yeah that that we read in the guardian last week
0: yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) speaking of the guardian oh no (laughs) (laughs) um there's a notable so i want to start yeah by talking sort of about kind of a few different groups of characters that we Mm -hmm. get in this film Mm -hmm. um There's a notable point here from Guy Lodge in a retrospective review for The Guardian published in 2021 about who is presented on which side of the argument. Uh, And he says, What's perhaps most dated about Victim today isn't its incidental homophobia, but its pointed misogyny, as practically every female character besides Sim's wronged, simpering wife and Mavis Villiers' haggish barfly (laughs) is a mouthpiece for society's most viciously gay-hating views. Now, I do think it's rather ironic that two characters I quite liked and thought were given a reasonable degree of agency and nuance in the film are described in such scathing and I would argue pretty sexist terms Mm, by this modern writer, Uh, but he does have a point, the junior detective aside, it is women who most often give the kind of homophobic diatribes in this film.
2: How many other women are there though? Like there's obviously the woman who is the blackmailer and there's that girlfriend we meet at the start of one of the guys who's just like virulently homophobic. Yes. Are there any other women? Ah, uh, there's no huge amount of other women, no, um, and so I don't think his point really holds up. No, so it's like half the women are homophobic and half aren't. Yeah, unless you give me a split list of the men, I can't fully comment. But well, I, I guess it's a thing where, like, unlike the men, you know,
1: none of these women are gay. Mm. Mm. So if we compare all the men who aren't gay or who, you know, like it's hard to tell sometimes. I guess, yeah. Mm. Um, like, I wonder how that shakes out because obviously we can't include, I guess, opinions of gay men on this although they do have their own nuanced opinions as well like Mm. i think it makes more sense to compare you know like the police officers and so forth maybe the police chief is gay maybe not i'll Mm. let you get into this later (laughs) but like that's an even split as well yeah yeah
0: Yeah, and i I think it seems fairly obvious to me that they were trying to have a fairly even split Mm. of opinions Mm. like in Mm. most scenes where there are non-gay characters there's a person arguing pro and a person Mm. arguing against yeah Yeah, like, the fact that, yeah, there are these two specific moments of kind of homophobic diatribes that are delivered by women. But, you know, there's also one delivered by a man, and then there's, you know, sort of a range of other opinions that are probably Mm. less virulent.
1: And the blackmailer woman is obviously, like, particularly intense about her homophobia, but she is also being accompanied in this by a man who is also, like, horrible Mm. uh, to these gay men. It's quite, like, smarmy about how he likes to, like take the checks of these mm-hmm. gay men and whatnot mm-hmm. so yes yeah
0: yeah so also
1: i will momentarily just defend my you know fave woman in this the haggy barfly or whatever i thought she yeah. was great
0: it, yeah i also yeah. think it's a really weird thing to say about a character who in the context of the movie is a model.
1: yeah yeah yeah, she has a whole thing about how she has to model like corsets at Christmas time. Isn't that the way or whatever? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yes,
0: get it, lady. Um so yeah, I found yeah, like Guy Lodge's article was interesting cuz he did talk about some interesting things, but I did find that particular <laughs> criticism quite bizarre. Mm, yeah. Um, But I just wanted to use the opportunity to talk a little bit about the presentation of women in the movie. Yeah, I mean, that is worth thinking. Like, I didn't particularly think
1: about that. So, you know, that, I guess, is something in and of itself.
0: Yeah, I thought Sylvia Sims' character, Laura, I was worried at the start of the film that she was going to be kind of, as Lodge describes her here, like a Mm. kind of simpering wronged wife. Mm. Um, But the fact that she, not only does she figure out what's going on, um, like she, you know, connects the dots based on her husband's odd behaviour and then, you know, what she reads in the newspaper, but then also, you know, kind of holds her own in her arguments with Far mm. and her discussions with Farr. And I don't feel, like, I felt like the movie did a pretty good job of her not kind of falling into either being super homophobic or just kind of being distraught and not being able to sort of engage with the conversation.
1: Yeah, mm. and I would add on to you saying that she holds her own in conversations with Far. She also holds her own in conversation with her brother, mm. who comes around and is like, oh, so like, your husband's gay and I'm not having my kids around here anymore and you have to leave him. And she's like, get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, After yeah. some back and forth. So it's not it's not even the case that
0: she only exists when Far is on screen or anything mm. like that. Mm. Yeah, but we get to see her at her workplace yeah. and like we get to see her kind of dealing with different situations and with her brother so yeah like I actually thought that her character was quite well done
1: yeah Yeah, okay
0: in terms of those who are supportive as you guys have alluded to there's no real depiction of those who are just kind of wholeheartedly allies and who think that you know like gay people just deserve rights because they inherently deserve them as human beings and that like Mm. we should be accepting of homosexuality in a kind of very holistic and broad sense we instead get, you know, yeah, these people who kind of hedge their statements by sort of saying well, you know, because like it's not these people's fault that they're gay we should therefore Mm -hmm. not prosecute them for Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I think this is fairly deliberate given the purpose of the film um, because what you end up with is a depiction of moderates who want justice or empathy and opposed to them are people who seem quite intolerant and that kind of maximally weights you towards presenting Mm -hmm. the change in law as reasonable
1: yeah Um, yeah
0: um, and i think also
1: like not to contradict or anything but to add on to that Whilst a lot of the arguments do seem outdated, that specific argument of, well, like, gay people can't help it, was one that I absolutely was hearing in, like, the 2000s, mm-hmm. even the 2010s, very mm-hmm. commonly mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think absolutely that's the case, right? But I think, you know, by the time you get to the 2000s, that probably, yeah, like, well, I mean, possibly as it was at the time, that's more of a centrist argument, and mm-hmm. that's why yeah. filmmakers mm-hmm. are using it, because mm-hmm. they're trying to appeal to a broad section of society. Mm. Our queer characters represent a kind of cross-section of society. So, like, the filmmakers are really trying to hammer home that these are just your neighbours. So we get, you know, a lot of respectable professions that are occupying different spaces within society. So we have a barber, we have a lawyer, we have a car salesman. Um, We obviously have, like, a Hollywood actor, Mm -hmm. um, which is probably a more stereotypically kind of gay profession. (laughs) But I did find it interesting that they really deliberately... Placed gay people in all parts of society. Yeah. And then our final group is our pair of blackmailers. Uh, notably, one of them is himself, very heavily queer-coded. Mm. Um, as Lodge puts it, he favours tight leather and has a framed photo of Michelangelo's David <laughs> in his apartment.
2: That point where they cut to the photo of David is so funny. Like, you see him on the phone or whatever, then he hangs up the phone and he leaves, and then the camera just pans to this photo of David and, like, zooms in and is yes. like, this man is gay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Dramatic
0: zoom on the penis Yeah, three, two, one. <laughs> there are a few very zanily dramatic shots in this the the one where um laura is at her workplace observing the child doing the art and when she reads the headline about barrett's death it cuts back to the child's artwork and the child is like scribbling over this well-drawn picture
2: (laughs) yeah it's like this very nice picture of a woman and then he like scribbles all over and it's like could you have more hair heavy handedly respected like this woman's life is being ruined right now <laughs> mm. um, uh, my
1: favorite like silly shot was right at the end when they're talking about like who the blackmailers are i believe and you're watching them at a table in a restaurant and this waitress with like a tea tray immediately <laughs> walks in front and it's like clatter 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 so the audience <laughs> can't hear what's happening and it's just done in the most unsubtle way <laughs> where i was literally like oh god i felt like this woman had knocked
0: into me <laughs> Um, and i was like oh that's right i'm watching an old movie (laughs) (laughs) they definitely do that with the um with the photo as well like they Mm. never give you a clear view of the photo they describe it in quite a lot of detail and you get sort of you get to see the negative being held up and you get like a sort of oblique view of it but yeah they do a lot of very deliberate filmmaking where you
1: mostly see it from the back
0: yeah yeah. people looking shocked at a piece of paper it's like
1: (laughs) half of this movie
0: (laughs) but yeah it's notable that both our villains performances veer heavily into the melodramatic and the camp i do wonder how much of that is potentially poor filmmaking or lazy filmmaking and how much of it is a deliberate attempt to kind of dehumanize our villains in contrast to their very grounded victims um to kind of really sort of hammer on that hey it's just average people are being hurt by this and the people who are hurting them are like very evil and bad
2: but why make one of the villains queer coded
0: well i think what they're kind of trying to do is avoid the perception and this is something that comes up when you read the kind of bbfc's Uh, responses to Mm. this movie is the perception that they are like wholeheartedly on the side of the gays Mm -hmm. um and so by having a queer villain you are then able to say well i'm not saying the gays are good people i'm saying this law is hurting people who aren't doing anything wrong
2: yeah so it's like we're not saying that all gays are good obviously there are bad gays here's one
0: yeah but this law is harmful Mm. and i think that's also why you have that gay couple who are um, Mm -hmm. swindling people
2: yeah, right, to yeah. show that
0: like yeah like some of the gays are criminals but like not all of them
2: mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, um. and i guess it helps with like the gay blackmailer to
1: balance out that the other blackmailer is like a religious woman mm. mm-hmm. yeah right like it makes i guess you're not being like religious people are bad which
2: i can't
0: <laughs> imagine would have gone down all that well <laughs> we yeah. hate
2: religious female secretaries <laughs> yes
0: yeah, so you like as I've just kind of alluded to, you get this very strong message that criminalizing identity makes it impossible to confide in others safely, uh, and the fact that these men are doing it anyway kind of points to how helpless they are, how vulnerable they are to blackmail, um, you know, it paints them as a victim. Um, you know, it tells the audience explicitly, uh, there's a quote where it's like, there's no cure for what we are. And, you know, you get particularly the scene with the character Henry, the barber, where he talks about, like, it's kind of an illustration of how impossible it is to escape your desires. Like, he's been imprisoned four times. Mm. He wants to move to Canada now and get a fresh start. And it just seems like kind of doomed, you know? Like, it seems very unlikely that he's ever going to be able to fully escape his sexuality.
2: Yeah. He says something like really, it's a really tragic scene where he kind of says, like, I'm going to move to Canada. I'm going to be what the doctors say is sensible, I think Mm. is what he says. Like, I'm not going to sleep with men anymore. Yeah. And like, you know, that's not true.
1: Oh, he says, like, you know, no matter how lonely it'll be, I'm
0: going to be sensible. It's like, God uh yeah i want to mention here that uh we haven't we haven't really directly touched on this yet but far himself had an ongoing affair with a man albeit not a sexual one uh before he was married and that his wife knew about this before like when they got together which is i found quite interesting Mm. and yeah as i kind of mentioned earlier she's kind of immediately insightful rather than like bereft and hopeless which is a huge improvement i found over the early treatment of women in the movie where I was really worried that women were just kind of going to be hysterical figures at the start of this movie. Mm. Um, There was a couple of opening scenes with her where I was like, oh no, this isn't going to be good. And then it was like, oh no, this is a real character who's three-dimensional.
2: Yeah, especially because the other female character you meet early on in the movie who's just like the girlfriend of a friend of Barrett Mm. and she's very homophobic and there's a scene where her boyfriend like says to her, basically, you're very homophobic because you're too stupid to understand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was happy that they did not go of that argument for the conversations between Farr and his wife
2: yeah because yeah. until you meet more women you're like is this
0: how this movie is just going to depict all women mm. but no I will note here that Bogard himself apparently wrote the scene in which Far admits to his wife that he is gay and has continued to be attracted to men despite his earlier assurances to the contrary mm-hmm. and I think specifically the line like I wanted him mm. um, is something that did get him in a lot of trouble um, with the censors and I think was particularly pertinent maybe in the American American banning of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly, but uh, yeah, that scene was written by Bogart himself, apparently, and that's obviously him knowing and having that experience, lived mm-hmm. experience of being a gay man. Yeah, um, I did read a very effusive review of his acting in the movie that kind of talks about all the small choices that he makes as an actor that are really like, particularly when he's uh, in scenes with other men. You, there's a lot of like game recognizes game is I think. Mm-hmm. For what, um, <laughs> what one person described it as of like him just sort of subtly eyeing up other men and observing them observing him mm-hmm. kind of thing um but yeah so the the film is very specific about the use of the phrase consenting males in private uh <laughs> there is a policy proposal in this movie that uses the exact talking points of the wolfenden report like they're not subtle at all as we've kind of alluded to several times
2: i didn't realize that they like specifically use that phrase yeah right They really do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um so yeah i want to get back to the senior detective i do wonder if the senior detective is meant to represent wolfenden himself okay um as this kind of you know like he presents the most kind of detailed sort of policy oriented Mm, view of the mm. situation so i wonder if that was the filmmaker's intent there uh in real life uh wolfenden's surprising support of queer men is explained by his son a foreign correspondent and cold war era spy and jeremy being gay And that seems to be what led him to direct this report in this way. Mm. I'm going to add one more little tidbit here to finish off the discussion of the story. In the novelized version of Victim, Far, who's called Car in this version, for whatever reason, (laughs) (laughs) sure, um, admits that he married his wife in part because of her resemblance to her brother, who he was in love with. Oh, Oh, no, honey, you can do better. No, the (laughs) brother's
2: such a bad man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No good. Yeah, I
0: don't like that. Yeah, no, I think I don't
1: think it's a good change either. It's a
2: yeah. bad addition.
1: It's always interesting with novelizations, like how much extra stuff they include, particularly about like character motivations. Mm. And I always wonder, like, who tells you you can do that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just make up whatever you want. And you're like, yeah, publish that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I remember reading like old like Doctor Who or like Star Wars oh, and stuff, novelizations yeah. and stuff like that. And I'm like, I feel like this really changes who this character is, and like, who are you? <laughs> <And all laughs> they, like, I'm like, it's just interesting to think about. Mm, you know yeah, yeah who defines who characters are and if it's just like someone who was effectively just ghostwriting something for you know minimum wage <laughs> that's just quite an interesting thing yeah obviously i don't know who did it in this case mm, mm. i will actually say i was so confused for quite a while about like so this guy's
0: name is just boy
2: i think his name is jack but they all call him boy
0: okay i am pretty sure his name is boyd
2: well, no, I read the plot summary to check after I watched the movie, and it's boy. Yeah,
1: on it's Wikipedia, he's, yeah, he's he's um he's credited as boy because I yeah. was like, is his name like Bo? And I'm like, insane or something. And I looked a book and I was like, oh no, his name is just boy. Well, uh, apologies anyway, we to we boy know.
0: for calling you Boyd earlier. Oh, did you? <laughs> I didn't that? understand. Yeah, no, it was a bit confusing because yeah, you do get his name as Jack initially, but mm. then. You get everyone referring to him as boy, and also, that's a weird thing to call a character.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Also, he's using a false name at the start, so you also get him referred to as Jake, so early on, you're kind of like, what's going on? (laughs) And then for the rest of the film, they just call him boy.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, A little odd. So, yeah, that's kind of it for the sort of plot of the movie and, like, the content of the movie. I want to talk now about the film's legacy. It's obviously hard to say how much a film, even a relatively popular one like this, impacted on overall public opinion. There's not exactly robust polling data to indicate a before and after shift.
2: You need an exit poll at the cinema.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, What can be factually stated is that after a change of government in 1964 to the Labour Party, the Sexual Offences Act was eventually passed in 1967, which acted on the recommendations of the Wolfenden Report and changed the law in England and Wales. It would be extended to Scotland in 1980 and Northern Ireland in 1982.' Um, and those who passed the law certainly thought the film had an impact. As Tim Roby put it for the Financial Review, Lord Aaron, who brought the legislation to Parliament, wrote to Bogard in 1968 commending his courage. It was one of countless letters of gratitude Bogard said he received. It is extraordinary, Bogard wrote in 1979, in this over-permissive age, to believe that this modest film could ever have been considered courageous, daring, or dangerous to make. It was, in its time, all three. The sort of like, long-term impacts of this, because obviously there were a few, there were a lot of restrictions on this law as it was passed, because there were a lot of restrictions on how Wolfenden proposed it be changed in his report. The age of consent was 21, and also you couldn't have more than two men present. Oh, okay. These things were gradually changed over time, so the age of consent for gay men was lowered to 18 in 1994, Mm. and a law equalizing the age of consent for gay men in line with that for heterosexual adults to 16 was forced through parliament in february of 2000 and the privacy restrictions of the law were held to be in breach of the european convention on human rights by the european court of human rights in also in 2000 um but yes until then it was still illegal to have like not just to have a threesome but also even just for another person to be in the room i believe this was used and i'm not going to like be very certain on this because it's a whole different period of history Mm -hmm. um but uh i believe this was used to crack down on bathhouses oh yeah um, oh okay during the aids epidemic
1: yeah, yeah, okay. I was, I was going to say, is this like a sex work related to
0: trying to criminalise like gay sex work? Oh, mm. I, I think at the time it certainly was. Yeah, And that yeah, was yeah. the intent of it. And then, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, it was and then also then used to target bathhouses. use homophobic laws for many things. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. As long as those things are homophobia. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it does seem like this film had a significant impact on the law changing in the United Kingdom. So with that, uh, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jace. I'm Alice, and I'm Eli. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out Queer as Fact on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. You can also follow us on social media, we're on Twitter, as long as that continues to exist, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. Uh, If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, uh, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics. This episode was chosen by our patrons. Um, You can also enjoy access to our monthly newsletter through our Patreon. All of this information can be found on our website, queerisfact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time when Irene will be telling us about the American dancer and choreographer Isadora Duncan.